I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. We've all heard the list of the most stressful life events people endure. Well, privileged people with stress caused past the basic hierarchy of needs. Now, this list was from BC Times before COVID, so I'm pretty sure living in quarantine during a pandemic would be pretty high on the list, too. There's the death of a loved one, starting a new job, work stress, financial issues, and of course, moving. When I say the word moving, there are probably a few things that come to mind. For me, it's, oh, God, no, and, and a helpless, I can't, I simply can't. But once the boxes are packed and taped closed, it's time for the U-Haul. I don't like to toot my own back, but after working a stint at UPS for a holiday season, I am not only a spectacular U-Haul packer, but it is truly something I am proud of, and a perfect pack brings me an unreasonable amount of joy. Just when you think you'll have to leave something behind, boom, I've retetrised the whole thing so you will get that lamp in the truck and have it at your new house. And I think this just became an ad, so you can email me for your U-Haul packing tips. <laughs> but today's story isn't about moving. And the murder doesn't take place in the Northwest, I know, but its origins do. So let's haul ass to Ridgefield, Washington, 1943, where fate would have two lovers meet, start a company that would change how we move, lead to one of the most public and expensive family feuds in modern history, and leave a family destroyed by a suicide and a murder. Today, I'm talking about the ubiquitous brand U-Haul. It was 1943 when 27-year-old Leonard Samuel L.S. Schoen was attending medical classes at the University of Oregon when his future wife, Anna Mary, was attending the now-defunct Merrillhurst University. L.S. wasn't known as a medical student, though. He was known by his nickname, Slick, as he was always trying to concoct some sort of new get-rich-quick scheme, hence being 27 in medical school. He had already owned motels and barber shops before trying his hand in the medical field. While he would have gotten rich as a doctor, he didn't graduate. One year before he would have, he was busted for covering for a friend that was skipping class. Since he wouldn't be finishing medical school, he would have to join the war effort. Marrying Anna Mary, he would never go to war because he contracted scarlet fever while he was in boot camp. That was followed by rheumatic fever when he went to Seattle. Obviously needing time to get well, he was sent by the Navy to Corona, California. In 1945, he was discharged and the war was no longer a fear. Now living in California, L.S. and Anna wanted to make their way back home to Portland. It wouldn't be easy, though, as they now had their first son, Sam, and there was no such thing as U-Haul. There were no trucks or trailers to rent, so, leaving many of their belongings behind, they started the 20-ish hour drive north. Between Slick's ideas and Anna Mary's family providing a home to the new family in Ridgefield, Washington, they were able to put together a business plan, and they would call it U-Haul. They started by using their savings up to that point, what would be close to $70,000 in today's money, and started to buy trailers. But they were old and damaged. They tried to repair their investments, but to no avail. So L.S. hustled and taught himself how to build his own. His plans didn't involve U-Haul-specific businesses at the start. Instead, he went to local businesses like gas stations and made deals with the owners. They could rent out his trailers, and he would get a cut. 
With the war ending, the desire for families to move was another boom in addition to the baby one. From its inception until the mid-50s, U-Haul became a household name for moving household items. America was back from the war. We now had suburbs, freeways, and the ability to live in different places without leaving our things behind. L.S. and Anna Mary were known about town for their remarkable arguments surrounding how cheap L.S. was. They were known to even order a single meal and two forks when they were out to eat. But still, they loved each other deeply. Then, heartbreak. In 1957, while going to bed, L.S. turned to Anna Mary and told her he couldn't believe things were going so well. The next morning, Anna Mary passed away at the young age of 34. She had died from a heart defect, one that doctors had warned her about, even to the point that they didn't believe she should be able to have children. L.S. was now a solitary business owner, widow, and father to six children, the oldest only being 12 at the time. How sad. Very. L.S. went from feeling on top of the world to feeling like the loss of his wife was the price he was paying for his success. Little did he know he would continue to pay prices for decades to come. Being that they had started the business together and L.S. being fair, he and his late wife had a 50-50 split in the stock. With Anna Mary passing, the six children then each received about 8-ish percent of the company. This seems like a bright spot in the sadness of the children losing their mother. But with what would have been nearly $56 million with today's inflation now divided among children, that division would leak into their relationships. L.S. didn't stay alone for long. It was within a year that he was remarried. This time, it wasn't a sweet story about a fellow student. Instead, it was that he married his neighbor's daughter, 23-year-old Suzanne Gilbaugh. No, thank you. Overwhelmed with the business and parenting, L.S. then sent Sam and Mike, his 12- and 10-year-old sons respectively, to a California boarding school. Suzanne and L.S. had five more kids, Jim, Sophia, Cecilia, Teresa, and Katrina. So he had 11 children? That is correct. The gang eventually made their way to Palm Springs and then Paradise Valley, Arizona, living in a Frank Lloyd Wright home. Ooh. With a father away to run his company, working 16-hour days, and a wife raising far too many children, the stress started to build. Suzanne spoke about how the house would have no rules or expectations, leading to total and constant chaos. L.S. tried to make up for lost time by buying things so his brood would want for nothing, but it didn't matter. Siblings were battling with step-siblings. Some of the kids referred to their stepmother as that bitch, so it wasn't exactly a happy household. It isn't much of a surprise that after 20 years of marriage, Suzanne and L.S. divorced. L.S. had to put his slick business savvy to the test when the gas stations he was using as his pickup point for the trailers were closing due to the gas shortage of the 70s. Always one to problem solve, U-Haul then started opening actual locations. Between the locations, partnering with storage units, and selling franchises, U-Haul was able to become the familiar billion-dollar company we all know. But as we all know, business and family doesn't exactly mix well. First, there were the marriages. L.S. was married a total of five times, one to the woman that had his 12th child, who he married and divorced in the same day, a three-month-long fourth marriage, 
and two of which were to the same woman. I'm sorry. Let's go back. Uh-huh. Which one? Did they the have one with the, the baby, baby before the marriage yeah, and my... got married and annulled? I don't think she got pregnant and had a baby in a day. Well, you never know. <laughs> it was a little weird back then. <laughs> it's my understanding that she had his baby and Out of they wedlock. went to get married. And, and then what changed? Are they going to fight? Do you know? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't. I'm sorry that I didn't deep dive into the <laughs> one marriage. <laughs> I want a spinoff episode on just, just that marriage. Yeah. He now had a dozen children to care for who were growing up and becoming part of the family business, a few even stepping into leadership roles within the company. Sam, Joe, and Michael, the older boys, started to work closer and closer in efforts to become the next president. Now that the boys had been to college, one even getting an MBA from Harvard, they had thoughts on how the family business should be run. Then came 1986. The business was failing as L.S. was putting his hand into too many cookie jars. So Joe pushed, push sounds kind of nice. It was a full-on coup, forcing his father to retire, which he did at the age of 70. With L.S. conceding and even feeling like he was bequeathing his empire to his children, Joe and Sam stayed on as the CEO and chairman. Although there were always tensions as Joe and Mark worked with a focus on building the business, Sam was working but always taking his father's side. Through the years, the interactions grew to be so toxic that L.S. hired a psychologist to examine the family. The psychologist found that as long as Joe and Mark were working in the business, there would never be peace as they only sought power. This psychologist's report was so damning it wasn't permitted in courts as evidence during one of the many lawsuits between the family members. In the report, he discusses Joe's behaviors as, quote, Bellicose, obstinate, stubborn, controlling, power-seeking, combative, confrontative, enjoys that, likes it, intimidates. That report had a huge impact on L.S. Into his 70s, he kept it. He had it highlighted on important passages and made notations in the margins. He reread portions like the recommendation that, quote, L.S. should allow the full consequence of their behavior to befall Mark and Joe. They should not be protected from financial pain or boredom or unfulfillment or vocational limbo. Next to which L.S. had scribbled, in all capital letters, I did not do. It didn't take long for the family work dynamic to fail. It was less than a year before Sam left the company, only to pair up with L.S. They got into some financial dealings that started to lead to another coup getting Joe out. But before they could, Joe was able to work with the board and stay in power. That didn't stop his own brother and father from suing him, though, as they felt he had cooked the numbers to be in his favor so he could remain in control, ousting Sam. An incident... That may have been motive for murder? The sibling relationships were escalating, from verbal attacks on Sam while he was in charge of the company to physical aggression between the men, forcing Joe to, at one point, be restrained from attacking Sam. The hatred and drive for power led to Joe firing his own dad from his lifetime employment of the company he had built and canceling his $400,000 salary slash golden parachute. All of the lawsuits led to nasty interactions for the family. At a shareholders meeting in 1989, Mark can be heard on tape yelling at Sam and referred to his German in-laws as, quote, Your father-in-law killed little Jews, didn't he? The end of the meeting came when Joe and Mark started to beat up their brother Michael. 
Michael filed charges, but nothing came of it. Where was reality TV when this was happening? But if you can even believe it, things then took a much darker turn. At 7 a.m. on August 6, 1990, a call was made to 911 in Telluride, Colorado. A little girl's voice was heard by the dispatcher. Excuse me, my mom, I woke up, she's dead on the staircase. She's sick? She's dead on the staircase. There's blood, okay? What's your name? Bente Schoen. I live in the ski ranches in a big log house. There was blood on the bed. Please send somebody. Okay, you said she's not alive now? I can't tell. Please send somebody. The little girl's voice was that of Bente Schoen, the daughter of Sam and Ava Schoen. L.S.'s granddaughter had discovered his daughter-in-law, her own mother, dead, murdered. Telluride is a very affluent area of Colorado. Especially in the 90s, there weren't a lot of calls about finding a murder victim, but on that day, 44-year-old Ava would be found by her 10-year-old daughter. She had been lying dead in front of her bedroom door at the top of the stairs for hours, shot in the back by a 25 caliber pistol. Ava and her family had lived in Telluride for two years at the time of her death. Although they had moved from Phoenix, she was originally from Norway. She had been married once before, before marrying Sam. To those that knew her, she was a woman that loved her family and dogs. Athletic and shy, there was no one anyone could think of that would want Ava dead. The fact that Ava had been killed in a fancy area wasn't the only bizarre aspect. As the investigation started, led by a sheriff that had been policing the area a decade but had never worked a homicide investigation, it was found there was no sexual assault, no robbery, no signs of forced entry. The family had dogs who, even though they were locked downstairs, made no noise. The house was full of children, too. Bente, her seven-year-old brother Esben, and his friend had stayed over. None of the children knew anything had happened. There were reports that they had heard a thud around 2 a.m., but it wasn't clear if that was from the gun or their mother falling to the ground. Between what appeared to be the stealthy skills of the killer and the family's complicated history, it soon started to look as though this might have been a hired job. It was quickly learned that Sam had left the night before Ava's body was discovered, mere hours before she was killed, for a last-minute business trip to Phoenix. Out of fear for his and his children's lives, he rushed home and took them into hiding, offering a reward of a quarter million dollars for tips. Investigators had their eye on the U-Haul company nearly immediately. They sent officers to the headquarters in Phoenix. They interviewed employees and family members. L.S. was involved, of course, still freshly ousted by his sons. A month and a half after Ava's death, he wrote a letter to the board of directors of U-Haul's parent company, Americo. The letter read, Gentlemen, you cannot but realize that Sam was to be murdered, that Ava was not to be the victim, that this murder had its impetus from the environment created by those in control of Americo who held the belief that if Sam were out of the picture, all would be well. That's right. The man who created U-Haul would go on to write a letter to his own children accusing them of not only attempting to kill their brother for power in the company, but actually killing their sister-in-law. Unsurprisingly, this didn't sit well with the boys, so they sued their dad for defamation. The death of Ava was now fuel on the feud fire. 
The boys accused their father of suffering from mental illness, that he was psychotic, manic-depressive, and more. He claimed his children suffered from bad genes and spoiled brat syndrome. <laughs> I think I suffer from that, too. L.S. did admit he had struggled with and sought treatment for depression, even being hospitalized for a few weeks back in the 70s, and he did feel he had codependent behaviors. His theories soon expanded past the medical and into the criminal. He had determined that either Joe or Mark hired the killer or someone in the company, friends with the boys, wanted to kill Sam. While L.S.'s theories were seen as outlandish by most, Sam, still grieving the loss of his wife, felt he was probably right. He was quoted as saying, I think the most likely scenario by far is that I was the target. My father is very well informed and very well motivated, and I know he loves Mark and Joe. At a minimum, I'm certain that my wife's death was a direct result of the environment created by the seizure of control of U-Haul by my brother Joe. So not only does he lay down that he agrees he thinks his own family tried to kill him and actually killed his wife, he asks his dad to hold his beer by throwing down his idea that even if the brothers weren't directly involved, they had created such a toxic environment, it was still essentially their fault. So who killed Ava, and was it actually a hit on Sam gone wrong? The only evidence, besides a battle between family members, was a pair of sunglasses on a string on the property, an unknown white jeep that had been seen in the area, and a suspicious man that had come into the visitor center. The sunglasses had been found to only be sold in California and Arizona, so that helped to narrow down where they came from, but not who they belonged to. The suspicions were raised quickly as to this having been an inside job for a multitude of reasons outside the infighting that was going on. The Schoen's home was large, but it was off any kind of main road. You wouldn't have just come across it. Additionally, Sam took Ava's car for his business trip, leaving his car in the driveway. If you were just passing by, you would think someone was home. With a sheriff that had never done a homicide investigation, you can imagine that the budget for solving the murder wasn't exactly large, and it wasn't, at just a mere $500. So L.S. assisted and donated $50,000 to the county in hopes of helping to solve the murder. There were, of course, worries that this would create an improper relationship, that if L.S. or Sam had anything to do with the death, they wouldn't be held responsible because they had essentially paid off the cops. But optics be damned, the county took the money and the investigation continued. Another concern came from a former homicide investigator that had been hired by U-Haul. He, John Sellers, was very vocal about his opinion as to what happened to Ava. He claimed that the children reported to him that men had come to the door mere hours before the murder and demanded money from the wealthy family, followed by a phone call that was made from Sam to the house. With those bits of info combined with the gun size, John felt this wasn't a hit gone wrong, rather an attempted kidnapping for ransom gone wrong. The sheriff claimed both those reports were inaccurate and all of John's spouting off about men at the door and phone calls was just confusing people and messing with the direction of the investigation. Perhaps instead of the sheriff being bought off by L.S., it was John, the P.I., that was bought off by the U-Haul team. The family feud soon turned into a law enforcement feud, with Sheriff Masters devoting his team to the murder and focusing on talking to people at U-Haul, 
So much so, it got to the point that no one at U-Haul was allowed to speak to investigators without an in-house lawyer present. Meanwhile, John felt it was a waste of time to continue talking to the employees and board members. But even death couldn't bring this family together. Suzanne, the second wife, reported that after Ava's death, she got a phone call saying, Joe, Mark, Paul, Jim, Sophie, and you are not invited to the funeral. Which I don't think I've ever been invited to a funeral. Like, yeah, it's an, it you just, just go. A, well, I guess if when you you're really to, rich, you, you, uh, they're not open to everyone. That makes sense. I want an invite-only funeral. I'm going to have the fanciest-ass invites. <laughs> I'm going to pick them out now. <laughs> The years went on, and there were no answers when it came to who had killed Eva. Sam continued his hospital consulting business and focused on his children. As time went on and no answers were clearer, he would go by the sheriff's office, checking in, in hopes a killer and perhaps more damning, a motive, would be found. When speaking about the loss, Sam said, It's impossible to overstate the emotional trauma my kids and I have experienced. The natural death of a loved one doesn't even register on this scale. My mother died when I was 12 years old. That was a traumatic experience, but it's nothing alongside this. I'm attempting to help my children recover and will do the best I can to raise them to be gentle, honest, and courageous, like their mother. Then came July 1993 when an episode of Unsolved Mysteries aired featuring Ava's case. That's when Frank Emer Marquis' brother-in-law called the tip line. Frank Marquis had already served time for multiple rapes and burglaries. With the tip called in, the authorities started working with Frank's brother-in-law, eventually wiring him so he could have a conversation with Frank. Once set up, a phone call was made and a conversation was had. Frank then confessed, on tape, that he had not only committed, but covered up the murder. With the confession, a real investigation with detectives in Santa Fe took place. It was found that Frank had taken off work on August 5th and 6th because he and a co-worker were going to you guessed it, Telluride, for a music festival. The questioning continued as another co-worker knew Frank had borrowed a gun from a different co-worker. When the co-worker Frank went to the festival with was questioned, he stated that Frank was behaving strangely on that trip, doing things like throwing his own clothes out the window on the drive home. Even though by this time it had been four years, he was able to take the police to the location where they found some of the clothes. No. On one of them, Ava's hair. Wow. That's the desert for you, baby. Four years. Preserves. Frank played dumb when questioned, but then quickly confessed. Against all odds and professional thinking, Frank did exactly what no one thought had happened. He was just a burglar on the prowl that happened to have come across the shown home and thought no one was there. He was startled, and the shooting was accidental. He was then arrested and charged, but not with what you would think. In taking a plea bargain that forced him to answer all questions in front of the judge, Frank accepted the charges of second-degree burglary and reckless manslaughter. He, in court, in front of Sam and others, explained that he had broken into the home when Mrs. Schoen, who he didn't think was there, startled him as he entered the bedroom. She shouted for him to get out, and he panicked. He pushed her down, and according to the burglar-rapist killer, the gun accidentally went off, shooting Ava in the back. She continued to fight, following him out of the bedroom, but soon collapsed at the top of the stairs, and his panic set in, 
and he froze. When he was able to compose himself enough to leave, he passed her body and contemplated calling 911. But when he heard her take her last breath, he knew there was nothing that could be done for her, so he didn't bother calling for help. It was then he also claims to have contemplated turning the gun on himself, but had second thoughts when he realized that wouldn't bring her back. So he bounced like a coward. At 40 years old, Frank Marquis was sentenced to 24 years in prison. He was paroled in 2011 after serving 17 years. Frank's confession obviously settled any questions surrounding the family's involvement in the killing of Ava. Although the true colors had come out, there were hopes of reconciliation when, after the trial, Mark said, I will extend my hand to these people. These people being, you know, his family. It wasn't until 1994 that one of the lawsuits was even settled for $1.47 billion going to L.S., going against Joe and Mark after their attempted deal in 1988 to sell the company. Unfortunately, this story doesn't get any happier. On August 4th, 1999, at 83 years old, Leonard L.S. Slick Cohen died by suicide. He had been living in Las Vegas, even owning the World Trade Center Hotel there, when he drove his car at 80 miles an hour into a power pole. There was no sign of car or medical issue, hence it being ruled a suicide. And here we are today. While U-Haul celebrates their 75th anniversary and the Pacific Northwest celebrates its origins, even though, fun fact, it wasn't until 2018 that Ridgefield, Washington actually got their own U-Haul dealer, you can't help but to feel sympathy for the founder and his family. A man seeking money, power, and influence, driven to succeed no matter what, hoping to provide everything he could for his family, even giving them the company he had devoted his life to, dying in a terrible fashion, alone, sad, and knowing that the divide between his own children was so deep they truly thought their own siblings were capable of murder. What's that old saying? Money can't buy happiness. You'll never look at a U-Haul trailer the same. It's so sad because what a bunch of little shits. Like, this man worked so hard to build an empire, and they're just born into being rich, and it's not enough. I've been told my recent episodes have been too political, but I feel like this one was inspired by certain families where it is like you've got this hustler dad that for whatever reason, like, what was his dad like? You know, that this guy's growing up going, by 27, I've owned motels, I've owned barbershops, I'm in medical school, I'm going, I'm going. It's like... Nothing was ever enough. Nothing landed and nothing Mm -hmm. stuck, you know? It's just hard because, I mean, that's how family fortunes are built, right? Somebody somebody had the gall and the... Right the how-to and just the the work ethic to make it happen and then you see these generations of just rich kids and some of them work really hard and do their own thing but it just feels so gross Mm -hmm. to fire your dad take your dad's company divide the family it's just to get in physical fights at board meetings and and at other regular meetings and he has the severe depression obviously because he's realizing wow this money wasn't everything and was it worth the family divide to mm-hmm. have this company? It's just yeah, really it's like, sad. You know how he said in the 70s he was struggling back then with depression and stuff. And, you know, it's like 
and and his whole bad genes comment. So it kind of makes you wonder uh, if he took blame you know oh i struggled with depression especially back then how we talked about that you know oh i struggled with depression and then i had kids and now i've passed this on or what you know bs like that um but yeah it's it's interesting because in reading through everything he really does kind of come off as this not the hero but oh come on guys i just want to it's easy to empathize with someone but like also that. like his nickname was slick you know, and it's like yeah, I'm, he's probably you, not perfect. Oh, no, not at all. But it's it's um, it's just, I just yeah, have it's a hard just time with their dynamics. Seeing these ungrateful children, you know, I don't oh, know how hard they work, though. You know, one of them went to Harvard. You but said even that's just, hard. But even just family. I mean, it's like it's family. How yeah. do you to get that toxic to where you can't even sit in a meeting? It's money. Yeah. Yeah. It's money, power, you know, well, and, and a bunch of similar aged boys Mm -hmm. growing up to be men in a company everyone wants to be the one in power and in Mm -hmm. charge and Mm -hmm. and you know if you break it down uh ls you know like i said was working literally 16 hour days so how does that translate is it for the for the sons is this coming out as anger towards dad so i'm gonna shit all over your empire is it coming out of Hey, maybe now you'll pay attention to me. I want to be the one who's just like you who worked really hard. Right. Yeah, for sure. You know, so uh, I think there's a lot of. It's got to be hard to be one of 12, 13, 13, no, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, yeah, five, six and one. Yeah. Like, do you even remember all your kids names? Right. Do I have 12 friends? Can I remember their names? (laughs) Ready? Go name 12 names. Any names? No. Uh, Emily. Anyway, so I I uh, did not expect U-Haul to be... That's juicy. That's a juicy story that I've never heard before. Dark. And I cannot believe there isn't a movie about Is uh, there right? a movie? Not that I know of. I've not seen one anywhere. That would be good. Yeah. Yeah, surrounding her murder and going like bigger picture to be... You're finding suspects and then you're telling the story via... And then to it to all really be a burglar. Right. When... The family seems like it was capable of that. That's really good. Yeah. How do you, how do you ever That's a see, screenplay. how do you ever see that person again? Because it's like, you accuse them of murder. Yeah. Like something, something happens and like a bird came into the studio and messed stuff up. And I say it's you. And I'm like, so you're I know you're, you're capable of it. You would totally do this. You're a piece it's of shit. Like you, I little hate- claws. <laughs> Shitting all over the place. That was you, and you're like, no, it wasn't. We have no, video it wasn't. Of this bird. And then it's like, it's a bird. Yeah, that's intense. I can't imagine yeah. being in that family. That's a Thanksgiving I'd like to witness at least once, though. So tell me about your Roomba. Should is it worth the investment? Because I've been saving and I just Well, mine was a gift. So I would say if you can get it as a gift, get it as a gift. I would not <laughs> definitely the best value I for would... dollar. <laughs> <laughs> and then it would really sully it for everyone because no one would ever get it as good as I could do it. Uh, that's true. Just going down on yourself like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, do you know the movie Twins yes. starring Arnold Schwarzenegger Ish. and Danny DeVito? Yes, okay, that's the baseline. Triplets. It's a sequel, maybe a reboot. The, the triplets are The Rock, John Cena, and Dave Bautista. Oh, right. And I think 
We're not sure yet. But I'm Dave really Batista, into that. Dave Batista is the baby, and they give him a lot of shit, even though he's huge. Or The Rock is the baby, and, yeah. and they give him a lot of shit. Yeah, it's one great. of the biggest moms. Yeah. So good. I am into that yeah. movie. Yeah. And Danny DeVito is their dad. He's like stuck in time. Who is this? My stepdad, hmm. Mickey. He was oh. our gym teacher. Wait, what? Yeah. And then my mom got back with her ex, Snake. His real name is David. Oh. <laughs> but we all call him Snake. He was a fisherman. He used to let me drive his car and boat. Why do they call him Snake? Long, thin dick? <laughs> I'd have to do that. How do you like night. them apples? <laughs> Isn't that New York? No. no. That's the big apple. Well, yeah. Oh, but no, no, no. I'm talking from Goodwill from Hunting. Goodwill Hunting. They're oh. in Boston. And he says that line. Technically, they're in Cambridge. But... <laughs> Matt Damon? Yeah. Hell yeah. But he has to be Jason Bourne, though. He needs to play that character in my bed. <laughs> Swings through your window. He... Confused. Defenestrates. Dif- <laughs> uh, defenestration. Defenestration. Defenestrate. We're into defenestration. We are. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 